Hi, film fans. How are you? Edith Bowman here. It is a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining me. Loads of great stuff on uh, the go at the minute. I am recording this on the evening of Sunday, the 7th of January, as across the other side of the world, uh, many a film star and amazing craftsperson is gearing up for the Golden Globe Awards. So congratulations to everybody. Good luck to everybody. Have a great night and uh, well done on all your hard work. Some of the films that are up for nominations we are going to be celebrating over the coming weeks. One of those is All of Us Strangers, um, which stars Andrew Scott, Paul Mescal, Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. And we have the uh, writer-director Andrew Haig and the fabulous composer, friend of the podcast, Emily levenez Farouche, who are going to be joining us uh, around about the film's release date, which is the 26th of January. Loads of great stuff actually coming out. Let me give you a quick kind of rundown of some great stuff that is hitting cinemas over the next couple of weeks that you should definitely keep your eyes out for. I hope you've been along to see Priscilla, Sophia's film. Uh, Today we're talking about Boys in the Boat, beautiful film directed by George Clooney, which we'll hear more about in just a second. Uh, Jodie Comer is in a new film uh, called The End We Start From. She is absolutely brilliant. Brilliant in this film. And uh, fingers crossed I'm going to be talking to her tomorrow, so she'll be on next week's episode. Uh, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers is coming out on the 19th, as is Jodie's film, The End We Start From. Um, There's a great little British film called Jackdaw that's been uh, written and directed by Jamie Childs. It's his first feature film. And he has come through some brilliant TV work, whether that's Doctor Who, um, his Dark Materials, and The Sandman. And this is his first feature film. It's very much kind of close to home. He grew up in the northeast of England and the film's set there and about a character from that part of the world. It's really great. Really, really good. Uh, and then All of Us Strangers is out on the 26th as well. Oh, and before that, Yorgos's new film, Poor Things, uh, starring Emma Stone, who I think is going to win everything, to be honest, at the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes. But we'll see. Um, so January is very busy. We're spot for choice with some great films. So I'd buy yourself a membership from somewhere, to be honest, so that you can get along and see all of those films. 2024 is rolling on in fine style here on the podcast as well, because after Sophia kicked it off, we have director George Clooney and his leading man, Callum Turner, joining me to discuss The Boys in the Boat. Now, it's based on a true story. The Boys in the Boat is a classic sporting underdog story with the narrative chart in a rowing crew from the University of Washington on their journey to the Berlin Olympics in 1936. It's a real old school, beautiful film. George is not trying to rewrite anything when it comes to telling these types of stories, but the way that he does it is just really captivating, really charismatic and really beautiful as well. And it's scored by previous guest on the podcast, the genuinely fabulous Alexandre Desplat. And we'll begin with his title cue.
Hello. Hello. Hi. You okay? Yeah, we're good. Awesome. Nice to see you again. Yeah, did you? Didn't yeah, go out partying? We all slept in a big tent together. <laughs> That's how we, we, we do post-shooting bonding. Boys in the boat camping. Boys in the tent. That's the sequel. That's the sequel. <laughs> That's a sequel. I like attacked that. by a bear. Cocaine bear? <laughs> oh, someone's going to make that. Listen, I want to talk about music, if that's all right, because yeah, um, we love it. Working with Alexander Desplat again on this film. Is this your like fifth or sixth time? You know, I worked with him before I was directing when we were producing for Syrian, I think was the first. Oh, time. wow. And he's just a, you know, he's an amazing composer. And then everything we did with him, uh, every I've done it every film except for the first two. The first one, uh, it wasn't with him. And then the second one, uh, we didn't have a composer. We didn't have a score. After that, it's just been Alexander the whole way. He's just a, you know, he's a, he's a force of nature. He and his wife, Solray, who, you know, sort of runs the orchestra along the way. And, you know, it's fun to go over to Abbey Road. In fact, my first date with my wife, you'll enjoy this. I met Amal in Italy. She came with a friend over to my house in Italy, just on her way through. And we were talking and we got along really well. And we just would write each other. And then I was coming to London to score uh, Monuments. And she was uh, doing, a, she was in London in, a, in some meeting with the Muslim Brotherhood, some fight with the Muslim Brotherhood, you know. And I called her and said, well, I'm in London. Why don't you come over to Abbey Road? I figured if you could ever impress anybody, it's at Abbey Road with 150-piece orchestra. And, you know, and that was our first date. Some first day, huh? Yeah, yeah some first day. You're such a romantic as well. It's like, oh. Well, think about her taxi ride over, though. She's leaving the Muslim <laughs> right, Brotherhood. Right, yeah. Take me to Abbey Road. <laughs> <laughs> Callum, are you, were you privy to kind of the the sound of this film? Because one of the things that Alexander's done with this film, with the music of this film, is it, it kind of really reiterates this beautiful kind of almost old school Hollywood nature of this film and that it's it's got a, a really lovely kind of... Um, embrace of that whole kind of era I think as well and I wondered whether it was something that George explained to you or or you know or, or let you hear some ideas of what he was thinking of sonically not musically but definitely we lent into the idea of the old school Hollywood the classic nature and the people like Gary Cooper and um, Spencer Tracy and the whole era itself you know I listen to actually the thing that I do is I, I for me it's all about energy but something that I did with the music, which I like to do, is I listen to Woody Guthrie every morning. Because Woody Guthrie, I mean, that, there's that movie I watched about him. And but, and he sort of, in in a sense, has a similar journey to, to Joe, maybe as, a, as an older man. But he was a traveler, right? He was always on the move. There's an essence to Joe. You know, Joe, from a young age, was, I think, at four years old, he was made to go and live with his aunt on the other side of America, put on a train on his own, picked up in a station somewhere. And, then came back and they had to move to this mining town. I'll tell you an interesting thing too, um, that he probably doesn't know yet, but you know, we also, you know, we write, and, and this is how Alexander works. He writes themes for characters. And so there's a theme, there's a love theme for them that plays when they're in the boat, plays a little bit and then plays big time in the, uh, in the first kiss. Then and it comes and it's blasting out. out orchestration
starts, you know, kind of straight away, we kind of opens with music, the film. We have this kind of beautiful kind of piano and strings that with yeah. this, and it immediately kind of creates a rhythm. It creates a, a, a mood as well, you know, I think as well. It's a lovely kind no, of. I don't, I don't normally do opening credits sequences. I like to go right in the movie and do the credits at the end. But this one felt like we wanted to set the world of rowing and make it elegant. So we shot it out on the Thames, you know, late at night and early in the morning. So we had that, so those beautiful shots. And then I went to Alexander and said, we need, we need something to get us into the game, which is you can't start it emotional because it's not, but it can't just be goofy light either. You know, there has to be something sort of melodic about it. And he's just, he's the maestro at it. as well kind of the, the the music for the character of Don you know of kind of what the piano and being able to play the piano does for that as a character you know it's kind of like it's it's so lovely that kind of almost comfort blanket for him or this kind of a confidence that he gets from it as well so that wasn't that, that whole you know ain't we got fun moment wasn't in the script we just I started looking back at depression wise where they what was the songs that were really the people who lost everything crapping all over the people who still had it and mm. you know the rich get rich and the poor get poor is such a great it became it was a real great chant and so then we wrote the scene for him doing it when you guys are mopping up playing the piano just a little bit and he had to learn how to play the piano for that. and then the second time when it's the big party and he starts to play it kind of gave them the we, we're trying to build something we always had a problem with how do you get him when he's rowing in the last race? Mm. What's the thing that jogs his, his head out of it? And so we set it up to give ourselves something to sort of trigger it. But that middle section, I think, is my favorite part. Oh, it's over fun, man. But when they pull him up yeah, on the stage. He lost the most amount of weight because at the final race, and so he, does, he does get sick and... Uh, Hume lost a lot of weight in, in, in that journey over to Germany. He was, he was a remarkable actor. He's a good cat, too. These two were fighting all the time because they were rowing against each other. So they'd be <laughs> best friends, and then they would just scream. Because, in, in a sense, we were, because he's the stroke, and I'm sending the stroke down to the yeah. well, not the leaders of the boat, but we're setting the tone. Yeah. Because it was, felt like there was more pressure on both of us. And Jack and I, we really did because we were part of a team, you know. We, yeah. And that's what happens in sports teams. You, you're all trying to be. Um, you're pulling in the same direction and you're trying to achieve the same thing and if you feel like you, you know obviously in the wrong you know better you're going to go at each other well it was kind of the theme of the movie right which is the the flaw is when each of you thinks you know better 
And the, the secret to it was when you stopped that. And these guys had to experience that in real life, which is they each of them were improving at different paces. And Jack was one of the, the last to get into the rhythm of it really well. Uh, and he was playing the stroke, who's supposed to be the, sort of the best at it. It took him a little bit longer to get into the right rhythm. The guy right behind him, Bruce, was like the killer. Everybody loved him. You know, oh, you're great. The golden brother. Yeah, behind me. I think that's going to be the thing that surprises people, though, as well, when you kind of, because, you know, I think that people will just assume that, oh, yeah, you kind of, you know, that they didn't really row. They didn't really, you know, it's like, no, you you really, yeah. you really did. And and not just that, but, you know, it was lovely chatting to you about it last night at the Q&A, but the idea that it was kind of life-imitating art in a way, in terms of you guys had to work hard as a team. So kind of, you know, in real life, you were doing that. I guess it really benefited in terms of that camaraderie on the screen as well. We were we were a unit for five months. You know, we really fell in love with each other, and, and like George says, we were moving at different paces, and and we had to just have allowances for each other, and we were all learning a new skill. And you know what we were able to achieve is nothing sort of remarkable. Was, it, honestly, you know, it really is. I, I have footage I can show you. I have footage of that first day we went out to see them, <laughs> and literally, I, at one point, I'm shooting it on my phone like this, and they're like. Blah, 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 blah. The, the, the oars are going back and forth like a like a dying duck. And then I just panned over to Grant's face and Grant's like this. <laughs> smile on his face. But yeah, we, we, we did. And uh, th- there is something that life imitating art. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I think I said this last night, I'm rereading the book and, and it's resonating in such a deep and more profound way. And a lot of people have asked me to roll with them. I don't want to do no, that because it's not going to be the same. It's not going to. I built a bond with eight other guys, and we had uh, a target, and we reached it. And, mm. and and it doesn't feel like it's done, but I wouldn't want to do it with anyone else. It's a funny it's thing what we do for a living. If you think about it, yeah, we get to experience a, for short periods of time whole worlds that would mm-hmm. nothing we would have ever done or known about. And we, I feel that we're very lucky in that way. For uh, uh, We've picked a profession that's kind of fun. Though. Also, it wouldn't be the same without George on the speedboat alongside us, you know, yeah, with the yeah. megaphone. What's wrong with but, you, buggers? <laughs> did, you have, did you have a modern megaphone or did you yeah. have the, the no, almost kind of like... I had the, the, no, I had the battery-powered one. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I was... I wanted to make sure it was humiliating to everyone when I was better. <laughs> Well, the funniest thing is these guys, they trained and trained and trained and they finally got great. And then we're shooting the last race. And the first take we do, they're like, and I literally, my head exploded. Because we have like eight other boats racing, and they're like, I don't know what that was. And I just kind of go, are you out of your minds? Like, in the next race, they were flying. You know, it was a really spiritual experience. And I remember after putting it together and doing it for George, the last row back, and we rode as slow as possible. And it was just a silent moment. And we were all in it together. And we all knew something. And we would never do it again. It was really emotional when we wrapped and everybody got out. Because these guys actually, you know, they really did go through hell. I love that it's not put you off rowing, though. I like the fact that you. I'm never getting in a boat again, Callum. You're like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'd, I'd do it again, but it's going to be the but, right yeah, I would want to do it with the guys. That, you know, and, and actually, again, life imitating art. Terry O'Neill brought down his mates that he made when he was 14 from Leighton. And he gave this speech about how you're going to make friends forever. And he 
cried. And I remember giving them a hug. And then we, we also got in the boat and rode terribly. And they were like, good luck. It would be fun to, for you guys, like, after a couple of years to get in a boat and row. But like, that's what these guys did, too. Yeah. You know, they're going to be fun. Joe Rance and those guys, they met up once a year and, and did the thing. Oh. There's something about sports movies, isn't there? It kind of follows, I guess, that thing of the underdog. You know, you're always rooting for the underdog, you know. You know, I, I think back to the, even things like Gregory's Girl when I was growing up in Scotland, you know, great kind of little football film from Scotland. But, you know, stuff like Cool Run-Ins or documentaries like Senna and Maradona and things like that. There's just these, it, sport just has this kind of, you don't have to be in it, the sport to love it and to fall in love with these stories. And even, these people. even if you don't know anything about basketball, I'll give you a suggestion. If you don't know anything about basketball at all, there's an hour and a half documentary 30 for 30, which is ESPN does these documentaries are called 30 for 30. And there's one called Survive in Advance. If you know nothing about basketball, you watch this documentary, you're laughing hysterically, you're sobbing. It's like it's this, you know, North Carolina State basketball team that have no business playing against the greatest basketball players ever. Michael Jordan is playing with North Carolina, and Clyde and Glyde Drexler and Hakeem Olajuwon are playing with Houston. The greatest, some of the greatest of all time are playing in college. And these guys who have nobody you know have a terrible season, but they win their division at the last minute and they get into the NCAAs. And every single game, they're down by 15 with two minutes left and they come and they win the national championship. And the coach is from like New York and he talks like this down in the South. And they're all like, well, this guy, he talked funny. And he's like, man, listen, listen, you kids. And it never happened again. And it's one of the most beautiful stories. And you will sob and you will laugh. And the guy gets cancer and all this. It's just so. And again, it's that same thing. My wife, who knows nothing about basketball, watched it with me, bawling through the whole thing. Because it's just such a sports films like that. You know, they they just raise you up. Anything's possible. Have you got, Calum, have you got a one that springs to mind that's a, a favourite of yours? I mean, yeah, Cool Runners was one I loved when I was yeah. a kid. <laughs> yeah. I, I watched this movie called uh, Lenny Cook. Lenny Cook's like the greatest basketball player that never made it. Oh. So when he, he was like the top high school guy uh, in in the States. And it's actually the Safdie brothers that made this documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's oh, wow. fascinating. Oh, wow. He's got this God-given talent, but he doesn't have the mental ability to uh-huh. do it. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's LeBron James is, is younger than him, a year younger, and they're like, he's in the... Oh, I want to see it. It's fascinating. Unfortunately, he doesn't make it, but it's just this journey of this young man. What about when it comes to um, soundtracks and scores? Have you got moments throughout your life as a film fan that you've got scores or soundtracks that have really resonated with you? There's one soundtrack that I think... I would put above almost anything I've ever heard in my life. And it's constant to me. There's tons of beautiful soundtracks, obviously. And you can listen to some of the older films in particular, you know, mind blowing. But when I, every single moment, particularly end of cinema paradiso absolutely destroys me. You know, I'm old. I fall asleep early, you know, now it was on the other (laughs) night. It was like, I turned the TV on at like midnight. I'd been asleep for like an hour. I woke up, I turned the TV on, Cinema Paradise. I watched it till three in the morning and I'm sitting by myself with a remote in my hand, just bawling. Oh, it just destroys me, you know? So that's a, a score for me, that one. You know, there's millions of them, obviously. 
about you? Yeah, well, there's a movie to go against like the Hollywood style. There's a movie called Babylon, which uh, is a, I think it's from 1992 or something, and it's uh, it's it's about uh, these reggae artists in in London. And Dennis Bobble does the soundtrack, and I always love dub music. It's great. Yeah, you want to dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Town ranking in a Babylon. Women and people thinking that they're having fun. Existing on a system for the stone from the sun. Down in the ghetto, no fracky to run. That they wanna clap it on a guan like you cute. See them, they wanna chuck it on a guan like we're talking about a living in a Babylon. We're talking about a living in a DC land. But if you want to know where the problem really lies. Then begin by ending war, start probing into the skies To the nitty witty gritty, the answer is dirt Man against man, from the face of this your earth I'm talking about the living in a Babylon I'm talking about the living in a this year I'm talking about the living in a Babylon I'm speaking of surviving in a this year He's an amazing character. The um, I was lucky enough to do a, I did a little documentary with him that he was in, and uh, he talked about writing silly games, right, and right. and uh, and he and he can't not sing it when you're talking about it, and it's and he can get that note as well that that Janice got. It's amazing. Did you guys see the Get Back documentary with the? Yeah. It's have you seen it? No. Oh, dude, you gotta see it. It's so amazing because you're watching like Paul McCartney just sitting around. And he's writing, like, get back. Just sitting around with the rest of the guys. And they're all dicking around with the guitar. <laughs> and it's like, he's like, Frankie was a man. And we're like, no, it's JoJo. It's JoJo. <laughs> we know everything. <laughs> yeah, and you're on the journey. Like, Larry was a guy who thought, no. And then, <laughs> it's funny, I had dinner a couple of nights ago with Paul. And I was sitting there with him. And there's never been a, there, there will never be a band that was, around for that short a period of time that had that many amazing songs who took us from the journey of ties and short hair to changing the world, you know, mm-hmm. there'll never be a band like that. And and when your third best writer is George Harrison, who was one of the greatest, that's just, it's just, there'll never be anything like it. And mm-hmm. Paul, I was sitting there with him and we're just having drinks and he's like 80, I think. And he's, he's like talking about like, yeah, you know, when we did that horn thing with Penny Lane and I'm like, yeah, and he's like, yeah, you know, we decided we try this like, flugelhorn, and I'm just like, really, it, just hearing songs that are ingrained in you, yeah, like in your blood system. He once came on a um, my radio show, and there was a, there just happened to be a keyboard in the studio, and he just started playing Lady Madonna. I couldn't breathe. It was just the most extraordinary thing. It's just amazing, and you know, particularly their songs, which are such such a part of our fabric of of our lives you know because their music changed as music changed they were the leaders of changing the style of music and all of the british invasion that came to the united states they all followed them they were the first and so everything they did so you know i i was there with them you know he was at abbey road playing lady madonna on the piano that's there that they used when they played lady madonna you're just like Oh my God! You know he had now and then. Yeah. And they, and he says it. He screwed up by saying AI 
the AI wasn't what, what are you saying is they were using it to take out yeah. the background noises, not to redo Lennon's voice. And that's how it got sort of screwed up. But he sent it to me, you know, a year ago and said, I've got this thing, you know, do you have any place in the movie for it? And I was like, oh my God, if we have anything to do with it anywhere. But I got to hear it and I wrote him then and I said, Jesus, Paul, it's a it's a Beatles song. It's a 50-year-old Beatles song. And he's like, Yeah, we rock. And I was like, Yeah, you rock, dude. I bawled my eyes out at the little documentary that tells you the kind of making of it. It's like a sort of little 10-piece little film of kind of, you know, them why they wanted to do it, how long it took, them coming back and forward, having this piece that George wrote before he died that they were able to, and it's just, I was- And then Paul was trying to copy his style yeah. of singing, and you know, it's just a loving, you know, when you listen to the song, the minute you hear those sort of changes, you go, that's the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, it's like the Beatles in 68. Wow, it's unbelievable. Just before we finish, I had the absolute pleasure of having a really brilliant chat with David Holmes um, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, He's amazing. And I'd had Soderbergh on the, the podcast as well. And we talked a lot about the Oceans films. And the great thing about chatting to David was to kind of give him real kind of kudos for how important his uh, music supervision as well as kind of score was to the kind of real rhythm of those films yeah. you know in terms of that the color of them almost in a way in terms yes. of the kind of the sort of attitude of it's them a in completely a way. different film if you don't have david's uh, music in it. it really is because you know films like that you have to tell people that it's okay to laugh you have to tell people yeah. not to commit a crime that this is going to be fun not well this is going to be dangerous you know and yeah and David's version of that music, because Stephen tried other things before he met David on, on the first one. And then mm -hmm. he came out and said, you know, maybe I think it's this vibe. And the minute before that, we'd done Out of Sight together. And it was a very different vibe, a lot of needle drop music, you know, which was great. But then this was pure, proper score. But it was with a funk to it, you know, mm -hmm. that just gave it a vibe. That was, what was inspiration? I don't know. I just, I think David was doing kind of a, it was a 70s vibe. I mean, that's the yeah. only way that it had a... It was a, a funk, funk, wasn't it? Yeah. journey for you as a director george a producer and director of that journey with music and 
because I was looking at all the different scores that, you know, Alexander's worked on, but, you know, also working with Randy Newman and things like that yeah. and Harry and Rupert Gregson, Greg Wilson on Catch-22, yeah. you know, and every one of them has got its own thing. Because sometimes, yeah. you know, if you work with a composer over a certain amount of time, you know, there's a, there's a familiarity there. There's a, but everyone has, it's, it's so unique and so different. And I just was interested to find out that journey for you, if you've really enjoyed it in terms of kind of, you know how that's been for you yeah well I honestly Alexander is a dear friend you know what I mean he's really a good pal of mine we go to dinners together and I really love the guy there's an element he has there's a a feeling for storytelling right so like I'll put a temp score in like we had a temp score for this and I the last race was really action-packed music and he's like yeah no (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, but you know, I mean, you know, what I mean, kind of like that. And you know, there's nothing a composer hates. Yeah, there's nothing they hate more than a temp score. I mean, they hate you. You're taking chunks of other people's scores, you know, and slapping it in, and it doesn't fit. But you're trying to give them an idea of what you're looking for. So Alexander basically just turns it down and doesn't listen to anything I send him, and then he goes, "I got an idea." Then I go over to his house. In L.A., he has a little house in L.A., and he has a little keyboard, and he'll just play out things, and then we'll go, okay, that's good, and maybe we could use that here, and, and he goes, yeah, but watch this, and then he'll change it, and he'll be like, now it's, this is, and I'll go, what's that? He goes, that's the same song as that, that's just different instruments. So he's, he's that kind of an artist, mm. and uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed every experience I've had with all of the composers, but I've done... I, I literally probably seven or eight jobs with Alexander and every single one of them has just been a, a joy. in March was brilliant. Love that. That That's score. You know, I went to and I said, I want like a a military, you know, type sound to it. And he's like, yeah. And I mean, he starts it off and it's got this energy to it. Mm. So by the time I get into the scene in the downstairs in the in the um, kitchen with Ryan Gosling, he makes the scene tense. He does.
been so lovely chatting to you about music today and your wonderful film. Callum, I'm really excited to see, you know, what you, you do next as well, because it's been great to kind of just, you know, when you see your name attached to something, kind of going, oh, brilliant. And you're absolutely fantastic in this. I'm really excited to see what's next. And um, and George, just, you know, I mean, if we look at the list of things that you're either producing, directing or starring in, it's it's exciting times for us as film fans. So long may it continue, sir. Uh, you know, we do these things when our movies come out and we do these junkets and we have all these conversations and there is no one more fun to talk to than you. And you're the uh, best. So we really enjoy it. Thank you. That's, that's so it. kind of you, say. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye, guys. From the score to the boys in the boat, that's training by Alexander Desplat. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with George Clooney and Callum Turner. My huge thanks to George and Callum for taking the time to talk to me. Boys in the Boat is out in cinemas in the UK this coming Friday. So get along and see it. Never had George on the podcast before or Callum for that matter, but we have had, well, rather a lot of great writers, directors, actors, producers and composers who have joined us over the years on the pod. So please head to edithbowman.com if you'd like to catch up with all of our previous episodes. There's a great search engine there for you to just dive in, search by title, search by name, search by composer and dive into our 400 odd episodes. Soundtracking UK is our social media handle and we also have a YouTube channel which we'd very much appreciate you subscribing to, sharing it as well to your friends and leaving us comments and all that kind of thing. Now next up, um, I always get slightly uh, nervous when I announce guests before I've recorded them but I am mere hours away, hopefully, she says, from chatting to the fabulous Jodie Comer. Music has centred around quite a lot of Jodie's characters. I mean, we had David Holmes on the podcast recently talking about Killing Eve. Um, her play, Prima Facie, Self-Esteem wrote the music specifically for that. And there's a great scene in her new film as well, uh, The End We Start From, where there's a, a lovely kind of campfire dance scene. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Jodie just about her craft and her brilliant talent and sprinkling in a conversation with music around that. also want to hear what she's into. Fingers crossed that chat happens tomorrow morning and I'll share it with you next week. Jodie Comer then, our next guest on Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.